Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm Magic Brian, your host for this growing collection of interviews. I'm pretty excited about this episode. It's a very interesting interview Eric Amber did with Mac Bowden when they were at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in the summer of 2019. They touch on so many different things, from a start on South Bank manipulating a glass ball, how to evolve as a performer, his philosophy on the art of street theater, using conflict to your advantage, art versus craft, and so much more. I spoke to Eric about the interview, and he said Matt is the Pepe of his generation. He felt he was a throwback to the past generation of street performing when Eric first started out in the early 90s. He pointed out his edginess and anything goes approach to performing. If you're not aware, Matt has been doing series on Facebook Live called Winding On With Matt. He's interviewed loads of street performers, many of the legends in our field. I'll have a link to that in the episode notes. Enjoy the conversation. Let me just start by, because I don't really know you. You're Matt. Yeah, we, we met a few days ago. We met a few days ago. I'm staying at your flat. Yeah. Here in Edinburgh. And what um, a wonderful flat it is. What's your last name? Uh, my last name is Bowden. Matt Bowden. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, I really fucking hate my last name. I worked under many different names, like I was Matt Mistake, I was Matt Valentine, and now I call myself the Incorrigible Rogue, and everything's just trying to avoid my actual name, you know? There's no, there's no reason to avoid your actual name. No, it's all personal silly bullshit, you know? Um, I, I, as many performers did, didn't have the happiest of uh, youngling lives, and so I think sometimes your name can... Uh, can become uh, a point of wincing, and so uh, that oh. did with that, you know. My father's name is Eric, and I'm an Eric. So you're Eric Junior. I, I hate and I hated it. Actually, I'm EJ to most of my fa- family and friends because of yeah. But I think it should be illegal to name your child after yourself. I, I, I grew up resenting it, resenting it. It's like you could have taken five minutes and come up with any fucking name. But then I find the word junior so palatable. Uh, you know, I really uh, enjoy uh, it. When I hear anyone called junior, or such and such junior, I think, oh, how quaint. Oh, fuck yeah. I'm a fucking junior. You are. Well, you were a junior. Is your dad still alive? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, sooner or later, you won't be junior. It's only a matter of time. That's how life functions. It's true. It's true. My father's a good man. It's just that, you know, when you're a young man and you don't have any perspective on life, it's easy to become resentful. Well, you want to forge your own identity as well. And if you're a junior, I suppose there's a, there's a predisposed identity from you will be the younger of your father. That's right. You know? I'm not you. Yes. I'm me. I quite like the idea of tutelarship. It's dead now. But the idea that uh, you do your father's trade and that passes on. I love the idea of that. My dad was a coal miner, though, and I live in Britain. So Your dad was a coal miner? He was a coal miner. He said it was the happiest days of his life. He wasn't like a pickaxe coal miner. Well, I think technology had moved on a little bit from there. Right. Um, but, but coal mining was, in England are very... Uh, yeah, it was, it was. Not anymore. It's mm-hmm. dead now. But he was under the ground. He was in the, in the tunnels, you know, 100, 100 feet down, two, three, 400 feet down. He did the proper hard life. And it was a hard life. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a place called Armitage. You've got a uh, almost a posh accent for a street performer. I do, and it really fucks me off that people tell me I have a posh accent because I come from a really genuinely working-class place. But I moved away when I was 16, and I went to Birmingham, which didn't give me a posh accent, and then I went to London, 
and lots of performers tend to be middle or upper middle class, well-educated people, and they're the people I hang out with and I enjoy and have conversations with, and through osmosis I lost my working class accent, and now despite the fact I'd like to see myself as a working class emblem, I talk like a posh bastard. Yeah, you're a posh homeless man. Yeah. No, that's good. I, I'm only take, I'm not trying to take the piss, I just, it's, a, it's an observation. I think that, uh, especially as a performer, you have to be able to laugh at yourself. You have to be able to put yourself on a, a grand podium and then be able to laugh at how stupid you look upon that podium. If you can't do that, then do a fucking power show. Be an athlete. Right. You're, not, you're not an entertainer. People want to see people laugh at themselves because people feel uncomfortable all the time and they want to be able to laugh at the things they feel uncomfortable about. So it's a great thing for you to be able to do that, at least in that 40 minutes that you're out there, you know? Yeah. So you don't have a street name? Uh, I've used the name over the last few years of the Incorrigible Rogue, and I really like it. Um, I took it from the 1844 Vagrancy Act, which has a description of people within the act as incorrigible uh, rogues and vagabonds. And incorrigible in their context is spelled with an I-N, and it means unchangeable. Someone who cannot become anything else. And so I quite like the idea of perverting that phrase a little bit and calling myself E-N, encourageable. Oh. So you get the context of the phrase in the Vagrancy Act, but instead I, I am changeable, but you can encourage me. I can be encouraged to change. I'm malleable. Uh, but I'm still rogue. The encourageable. Yes, encourageable rogue instead of encourageable rogue. Right. So did you go to university? I did a fine art degree for a, a year before I decided that drinking beer was far more interesting. Mm -hmm. I had this weird concept in my head when I did my degree that it was going to be it was going to be like the stories you read about artists where it was a process of philosophy and self-discovery and you know you were going to learn about the world and existence and I realized quite quickly that it was product making you were making things to be sold and it didn't excite me and because of that I didn't do it and I just sat and drank beer with really interesting people and talked and learned about life in that way the only thing I took from it, which is a nice parallel through my life, is uh, I believe that the art world, particularly the fine art world, exists in these white cubes, and it's work that's designed for a creative, small sector of society to enjoy. And I really appreciate guerrilla artwork, like Greenpeace doing their political stuff and things like that. Work that has an effect in the world, out in the real world, that's accessible to everybody. Not just a few people who have the right words and the right ability to be able to take apart what is essentially, a lot of time, pretentious bullshit that says nothing. Yeah, given permission to say something. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say permission. The art world, particularly the fine art world, loves the idea of being rebellious. But they're rebellious within the confines that they set for themselves. Their, their world can only really exist in the way they want to appreciate it within inside the white cube. Right. And street performances I found later on was, uh, it was a way of getting outside of that white cube. You, even if I did my show in a theater and I could be asked to try and find a public who'd appreciate what I did, as soon as I found a public who appreciated what I did, that entire crowd is almost predisposed to agree with me before I began. Right. But when you do a street show, it's everybody. Yeah. It's all different parts of society. You have millionaires, homeless people, um, drug addicts. Mostly homeless people and drug addicts. Uh, mostly homeless people and drug addicts, but then the millionaires sit around them, you know, and it's... Uh, it's it, true. It's a spectrum, you know. Um, and I think that's something valuable, and I think that's something that a lot of... 
people who are working street performers miss out on because they're not necessarily trying to say anything. It's not a piece of art, it's a piece of craft. You're crafting a show which will effectively do the things you need to be able to put your heart out at the end of the show and get a reasonable payoff from the effort you've made. Whereas my big belief is if you're out there and you're putting something out there, you should have something you're trying to communicate. You have the ability to affect the world in a very small way, not in a big way. You know, your pond, the ripples you make in that pond, it's a pebble compared to, you know, people on YouTube have millions of hits, they're throwing bricks into the pond. You're throwing pebbles, but you're still making waves, you're making ripples. And so, as someone who has thoughts about the world, which I think everybody does, I think it's a shame that you see so many people not actively trying to communicate something, some subtext inside their work. So how did you get into it then? Well, this is a weird um, kind of dichotomy in my beliefs. I'd like to believe it's not about money. But the only reason I got into it was money, you know, and it's a, it's a, it hurts me. Reality hurts me sometimes with this. I was doing a job, I wanted to be a DJ, and I was a kind of shitty techno guy. I didn't play good music, I didn't make good music. But, you know, I was 19, I wanted to have lots of drugs, and I wanted to be loved. And so I tried to get into this thing. And I worked in a shop called Cyberdog. Cyberdog. Yeah, it's a fluoro fashion shop. Kind of guys who run Where was that? Hippies. It's in Camden. And so the guys who run it like super hippies. But, uh, super you, hippies. Yeah, super hippies. But if you want to have a break during your entire day of work in nine hours, you have to come in early and make up the time. We're all capitalists. And so... Um, Hang tight. And so, and so I was working uh, inside this place, and everybody there had piercings all over them. They had dreadlocks with a hundred different colours in them. Super hippies. So, well, they were cyber hippies. Cyber you know? hippies. Yeah. And um, I didn't look weird. I, I kind of wore baggy trousers and a black T-shirt, and I had kind of fairly uh, normal look. So quite quickly, they kind of was telling me, they said, if you don't look a bit more interesting, if you don't finesse your look up, you're not going to be able to work here. What, so, so they said you, you didn't fit the part? Yes. Yeah, yeah I looked too normal, you know. That's funny. It is funny, you know. Um, the cyber hippie should be like, you can be whatever you want. Oh, you can be wherever you want, as long as you're wearing ultraviolet yellow, pink, or blue, you know? Right. And so I started playing with this glass ball just as a way to make myself look a little bit weird. I went to the juggling shop that was in Camden. I bought this contact juggling ball, and I'd seen it in the labyrinth, and I bought a DVD called In Isolation, which showed you all these different contact jugglers showing work. And so I, I learned to muck around with this thing, and I was shit, but... It, I was spending nine hours a day moving coat hangers. That was your job in this place. You had to make sure a coat hanger was an inch away from every other coat hanger because that's the aesthetic the hippies desired. <laughs> and so instead of just sitting there fucking bored, I'd play with this glass ball and I was shit, but it was something to do. Now, one day, my friend who worked in this place had booked a morning off to do a job interview. He'd gone to the job interview and they'd asked him to stay and do an afternoon in this job interview. And when he called up to the manager and said, look, I can't come in the afternoon, can you cover me? The manager said yes. 
Now, the manager spent most of her life telling people what to do instead of doing it, as most managers do. And she fucked up and she lost three, four hundred pounds worth of uh, stuff that got stolen. She blamed him, she sacked him that day, and she refused him a reference. So, not only did he get fired, but he couldn't get the job he went for, which he got with a reference. So, he had nothing. She basically destituted him in a day. So I felt very righteous, and I felt you know like I had to do something. So I turned around and I said, right, I won't work for you. I'm going to leave today. And I walked out of that job, and I felt fucking great. I felt so powerful, you know, until I got home, and then my partner at the time said, we're a fucking idiot. We, we've got to pay rent. What the fuck are you doing? And all I had, really, because I've quit university, I went to this silly fucking fashion dance place to try and get into the music industry, which didn't work. All I had left was this stupid acrylic ball. And so I was like, okay, well, you know, people do silly shit on the South Bank, I'll go and try and do it there. So I went down to the South Bank, I started performing in front of the National Theatre. I did my first day and I made a pound an hour. And I didn't deserve that fucking pound, that was generous, you know. I was terrible. I was about two steps above the guy who's got a guitar with no strings on it. That, that was about as far as I was in terms of quality of work. Is the National Theatre still a pitch? Yeah, well, the National Theatre... The National Theatre was not a pitch, and this is an interesting thing. I mean, maybe I should come back to it later, but I began my performing career there, and a few years ago, I did... Um, I did a, an action there, which I'll talk about maybe later in an the interview. An action? What do you mean? Um, in in my later career, as soon as I really figured out what Street Force was, I've made a big point of going to places where people tell you you can't do shows, and being a stubborn bastard and an informed bastard, and saying, no, I'm going to do shows here. And so in the national, security have come and tried to wrestle me away and tried to take me off the place, and I've refused, and I've been quite informed, and I know that even though this place the entire of the South Bank, if anyone goes to perform there, the whole stretch of it is private property. But in Britain, <laughs> private property doesn't mean shit. You have public access. Right. Trespass is a civil wrong. And a civil wrong cannot be solved by violence. So if they can't use violence, they can't fucking touch me. And they can debate with me as much as they want. I'll happily debate with them in the show. One of my happiest moments in the South Bank while we were going through this battle to open the pitch of the National Theatre was when I managed to convince a security guard to have a live debate with me in the show about the, the moral imperative of doing shows there. It was a beautiful moment. Telling uh, 100, 200 people to stop booing a security guard while he's trying to explain himself and be his buddy and support him through explaining why I shouldn't be there was a lovely moment. And to be able to explain to people this thing where he'll turn around and say, I don't want to do this, but da-da-da-da-da, some bullshit reason. And to be able to explain that this is... And, and public discourse is like a big thing in, in, in Britain. I um, mean, yeah, I mean, I've, I've traveled through Europe, but not all over the world. I'd like to imagine public discourse is a big thing everywhere. Oratory, public oratory, the ability to be in public and speak and talk and communicate and create culture without gates. And by gates, I mean like you know, a booker or a venue holder or just somebody who can judge whether what you do is valid or not. Yeah. Is important because. Um, myself, I, I've developed a character which is the lowest status character I could find. I like the idea of looking like a crazy homeless kind of junky dude. I like the idea that at the start of the show, people are genuinely looking at me and thinking, is this guy crazy or is this guy uh, a 
well-crafted actor playing a part. Hang on, hang on. It suddenly got really loud here. It's crazy busy. Fringe, huh? Fr- that's the, well, that's why I chose to come to Fringe, so that I could, you know... It's the perfect place to have quiet, polite conversation. <laughs> There's nothing like a million people coming to a city they don't live in to have a nice, quiet time. Indeed, indeed. Let's just put this on pause for a second. And so I'm stood in front of the National Theatre. I'm doing this butterfly move where you move the ball from one hand to the other. I'm doing a couple of odd little tricks. And I earn about a pound an hour. And I don't deserve that pound. Sincerely, I didn't. I was fucking crap. And um, security very quickly came to me and moved me on from performing the National Theatre. And they said, look, there's this 100-metre stretch up there next to where this big wheel was, and that's where the performers are. So I went to go and work there. And I did two days before they moved me on. I made a pound an hour. I worked six, seven hours. Maybe I made more. I think I made about 30, 40 pounds out of the day. So it's more than a pound an hour, but not much more. And I moved to perform with all the other performers there. And I immediately ended a little bit less because there's lots of good performers there, you know. Um, I had an inkling of what the future of busking was as I walked past a guy called Derek who was a reggae singer. And this was the second day I worked in the South Bank. And as I walked past him at 6 o'clock in the afternoon, he was there with his guard going, Come on, South Bank, don't give up on me. Sadness in his eyes. And I was like, oh, fuck, this is my future, <laughs> you know. Um, but I, I stayed and I worked there. And one of the great things about the South Bank was that they have one show after another, after another, after another. It was like a Disneyland or McDonald's of street performance. People would move from one place to the next. And... Uh, I watched a lot of people slowly starve to death there, you know, and uh, I contact juggling, luckily enough at the time, there wasn't many people doing it, I could just about make enough money to live and get by, I started squatting shortly after that, which meant I'd have to pay rent in London, which was a godsend, because fuck knows how I would have lived if I had to pay rent, at least learning. And you were just doing contact juggling the whole time? I did three years of just doing contact juggling, doing this, uh, it started off as just basically training for six to ten hours in the street, practicing. And after a couple of years, I got pretty good at it, and I was a nervous young guy. I'd taken far too many drugs as a young kid, and it put my mind on a weird switch. And so, most of the time, I'd end up playing with these little glass balls. I got into this habit of this, and it made me feel comfortable and safe. And so I was practicing many hours of the day. And after two, three years, I became pretty fucking shit hot at this contact ball. I could do two ball body rolling and all these things which very few people in the country could do. But one of the things that really drove me mad after I discovered maybe year two that you don't perform all day, what you do is you do a piece of work, you get a crowd, and then you stop and you bow your head gently and you point towards a hat to get paid. When I realized that, it made my life slightly worse at first. (laughs) Because you realize how little people pay you (laughs) when you stop the show and look them in the eye and basically say, this is the time you fucking pay me. A lot of people would film and then walk away. Uh, I came up to Edinburgh uh, during that time and I sat and I did this silly fucking contact ball routine while I stood next to James James and some other fairly capable Todd when he was first beginning and he had this uh, ladder show and so I'm doing this silent contact bullshit fucking show and these guys are getting 200 people watching them and I was making fucking nothing. So I went back to London and I realised I need to up my game. This is not this is not the effective way to do the craft we do. And at the same time as realizing that, there was a deep growing and building resentment 
of people walking away after filming things and obviously enjoying what I was doing and they'd walk away without giving me any kind of gratification of any kind. Resentment seems to be a common thread for street performers. Some street performers, not all. Uh, I'm quite glad now that I don't feel resentment to my audience and I don't feel resentment to the public. And I know the reason I don't feel that is because I began talking. And I began communicating. Oh, you were silent? I was silent to begin with. Yeah, I did a silent contact show. And I think a lot of I find that surprising. You're a chatty guy. Yeah, yeah, I came a long way. Um, I think a lot of performers, particularly silent athletic performers, and I have a distinction between an entertainer and an athlete. If you're standing on the street juggling nine balls and expecting people to pay you for juggling nine balls, you're an athlete. You're not entertaining people, you're showing physical prowess. And I think a lot of people who get immensely bitter is because they've forgotten the idea that you're meant to be engaging and entertaining, and they expect that by virtue of the difficulty of the task they're doing that they should be paid. And so I started talking, and when I began talking, I watched a couple of Gazzo DVDs. And I didn't do cups and balls, I did contact juggling, but I did some Gazzo lines, and every other word was, if you want to see it, say yeah, engage in the crowd in the most simplistic way. And it did me good. You know, I made a, a reasonable living, I had a functioning show, I'd get a 15-minute show that people would watch and engage with. And uh, it got to the point where I was working next to the circle pitch and I was kind of like a tumour, you know, growing off the build-off of their crowds. And uh, Evil Paul, uh, people who know Paul will know who I mean by Evil Paul. He's not evil, he's a lovely human being. I love you, Paul. But his name was Evil Paul. <laughs> Came up to me and uh, without the fear, you know, told me I needed to queue up with other people now. My show was at this point where I had a crowd and I couldn't just sit on the side of shows doing doing essentially a half circle. It was time for me to go to a circle show. And so I went and uh, did this circle show and I exchanged ten shows a day for one show a day or two shows a day. And my earnings obviously like, dramatically decreased. And one of the nice things about that, and I support anybody who's, who's doing the ducking and diving and trying to get 10 shows a day with their show to go and queue up and to limit their amount of work but what happens is when you're queuing with other people you increase the amount of experience you're gaining every single show because your show you'll gain experience from doing it and you'll gain experience in the focus that you know that you have to make this one work you can't tell the crowd to go fuck themselves and get another one because you're going to wait four hours till your next go but at the same time as that I sat on the back of the pitch with people like Pepe and Paul uh, Kino um, uh, Rob Collins all these very experienced capable street performers sorry if I didn't mention anyone I, I got a lot from everybody um I learned so much. Now, what crap. stage was Pepe in, in those years? Um, Pepe was um, Pepe at that time was he wasn't performing that much anymore. He was more just sitting around on the pitch. He'd come, he'd chat a lot, and uh, it was more the social with Pep that I learned. I learned a sense of. Um, the the ethic of the old street performer the idea and this is something that i have pepe and another person is brian reed i built a show doing these shows at south bank that was incredibly commercially viable i had a tall bicycle not a unicycle a bicycle that was tall that would turn into a portable stage i got a chainsaw i got all these other different things which are big huge props limos large impressive metal objects <laughs> 
and I built this very effective commercial show which was hack as fuck you know it had every line that I thought would work at the time was fair game and I pulled it into my work and then after I had this effective show where I was making a good living and it it didn't fail very often it was a good piece of craft and I think the important thing which you know I'd like to come back to again is the difference between art and craft and that's something that I think as street performers we don't look at that much I think the whole industry it's not an industry but the whole culture has become obsessed with craft as opposed to art um, it was a fine piece of craft but then I talked to Brian Brian Reed who's a, an incredible writer of material probably one of the best out there I talked to Pepe who once again was an incredibly creative powerful performative force and they'd say things like you know all lines come from somewhere God did not come down one day and bestow upon the street performers the lines you know <laughs> yeah and um, I never thought that I'd never been told that I'd never been given that idea of information majority of the people I sat around with were like yeah that's a good line you use that line this is a good line you use this line and they saw what we did as 100% craft you do what you need to do you do what's effective so at the end you can hold your hat out and people will recompensate you what you think is reasonable for your work the idea was art was kind of crazy to me to begin with because you're just making it happen you're looking for pay and so to talk to Brian talk to Pepe talk to these guys uh, living space is the same very much longer on in my career but he had the, you know the same kind of ethic for this is that what you're doing is art it's a piece of artwork you're communicating something to people and we all think things about the world we all have beliefs of what we should do and what we should be and what everyone else should be and as performers we contact people every single day hundreds of people we have an influence over and you know if you look at it as a point of reference we're throwing a pebble into a pond and making a ripple and youtubers uh, people on television people who contact millions of people every day they're throwing bricks into the pond they're making big waves and you're only making small waves but you're making waves and if you feel responsible for the world, for an idea of, and it sounds pretentious, but I think it's valid, an idea of legacy, your legacy is the people who watch your show. So as this idea of it being art was communicated to me, and you know, I engaged and I, I, I really, I don't want to say bought into it because it sounds like it's bullshit. It's not bullshit. I, I really understood and agreed with the sentiment. I decided that, you know, you have to make work that's more sincere to your beliefs and you have to have a subtext and a context and you have to have things you want to communicate to your audience. And so I got rid of my big bicycle. I got rid of the chainsaw. I got rid of the things that did majority of the work for you. And I went to a ground show. I went to a backpack with a tennis racket and a speaker. And I tried to develop work which had something to say that I believe should have been said or should be said um, there's a guy called JP Kawara I'm sure you know him I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will know him and he said a thing which I think is anyone who doesn't do street shows will feel like it's the most pretentious bullshitty thing in the world to say but if you do street shows <laughs> hopefully you'll agree is you change the world 300 people at a time and that's the idea is that you know you're not throwing a brick into the pond yeah you're throwing a pebble but that pebble and that wave has an effect it has an influence and so as someone who is creating culture why be a craftsperson be a fucking artist have something to say have an effect if you have an effect and you get paid 
I'd like to believe that you feel so much more satisfaction than just I go there and I say bullshit that I've heard and it works and I get paid. Yeah, but the two things go hand in hand. Uh, I think it's uh like it, it seems to me that you you you, you work working a craft, but it you know that's the training. Yeah, I mean this is a difficulty, and I feel like a hypocrite for it. I'm sorry the people I've done this to before. Um, I will now tell people, oh, you've got to write your own material. Begin writing your own material. Don't take hack. Start with your own thing, and then you'll have an easier time writing your own work. I'm a fucking hypocrite. I started with hack. <laughs> I watched a Gazo DVD, and I took a lot of lines from the Gazo DVD. I took a lot of lines from other people I saw, and I formed a show, and I made a show, and I learned the craft, because I'd never performed before. I never went to performance school. I never did any of that thing. It was fucking 80. I came from a mining town. If you're a performer, you're a fucking the biggest dick in the room at that time, you know? Gazzo must just fucking hate the fact that he put that, that DVD in it. <laughs> well, uh, he sold that DVD, and that's the thing. Like, Gazzo is an incredibly powerful entertainer. And I feel sorry for the fact that he has to arrive at a pitch and there's 10 people doing his show. <laughs> yeah. But he has to remember... I'm sorry, Gazzo, you think I'm a dick for saying this. <laughs> That show was sold to them. They paid the price to get that show, and that's that's one of them, you know. Um, but, but he'll be he'll go down in history. He has gone down in history. Gazzo is an influence. A lot of the material I use now. So I'll give you an example. I will turn around and say things like, uh, "This is my ex-boyfriend." Uh, this is my ex-boyfriend is a line from Gazzo's thing of, yeah, the gay guy and this kind of thing. Now, my idea was taking these lines and trying to um, change them. So you use the same marionette, the same strings of laughter. You're playing the same puppeteer thing with the crowd. Instead of saying, this is my boyfriend, and the laughter is that he's gay, you turn around and say, this is my boyfriend, and Steve, and I need you. I miss you. Why don't you talk to me? And so you're doing the same strings of laughter, but what you're doing is you're changing the power dynamic. So the person you're imposing the fantasy, the farce on, is the powerful person inside that narrative, and you are the person who is undermined. And in that way, hopefully, I mean, maybe I'm bullshitting myself, maybe it's the same homophobe bullshit jokes that have ever existed, I hope not. I hope in that way what you're doing is you're empowering the idea of people who might be undermined and you're, you're, you're changing the perspective of the crowd using the same strings of laughter. It's an evolution. Yes, exactly. It's an evolution of material. God knows, you know, we shouldn't see young performers coming out here and pointing at people and trying to get laughs just because people uh, are supposed to be homosexual or because people are supposed to be weak or any of these other things. The evolution of material, I hope, is you take that idea of why people laugh the um, the reflex of discomfort and like Jeet Kune Do and Bruce Lee you take that energy and you redirect it into somewhere more positive into something that has a positive affirmation at the end of it instead of turning around and saying uh, this is my ex-wife Julie here with a new lesbian lover you can turn around and say this is my ex-wife Julie here with a new lesbian lover <laughs> you homewreckers I'm glad you ladies are happy and it's only a slight fucking stupid difference but the difference is that you put yourself in the point of being the less powerful person in that relationship yeah the people hopefully at the end are laughing at the fact that you are an undermined loser rather than they are uh, um, a small group in society that can be isolated sure yeah I agree with that yeah
Shall we talk about creativity and work? Absolutely. The point we were talking about before. So I said before, I feel a bit of a hypocrite. I tell people that they uh, they have to be creative. And I tell most people beginning that you should always start with your own material. That's a tough one, though, starting with your own material. Yes. Start, because, like, you know, like you don't know what to do when you're... Fr- you say, I want to do that. You see someone, you're like, I want to do that. And you, the first thing you got to do is, like try and copy it like okay can can I do what they're doing before you can maybe so it's a tough one I know in theory it's a good idea write your own material but it's tough well this is the weird thing is that I don't think I would be the able to perform in the way I perform now if I didn't stand on the shoulders of people who came before me yeah but at the same time I also believe that it's incredibly harder to write funny original material once you become addicted to the laughter and the applause and it is addictive when you stand in front of a crowd and they cheer and they laugh at the hack line you heard someone else do that you're repeating it makes you feel good it makes you feel like you're a funny guy and you're not a funny guy the person before you was a funny guy and you're taking what he did I think well I, just looking at you you got a funny outfit you got a broken foot you got a giant hat and some ridiculous glasses. <laughs> well, it's a different thing being a fucking idiot and being a funny guy. You know, I know lots of fucking idiots. So what do you, what do you consider yourself now? Are you a clown? Um, I would say I'm a verbal clown. If I had to describe myself, I'd say a verbal clown. I fucking hate the fact that they go, oh, you're the tennis racket guy. It's the bane of my life. I hate that fucking trick. I hate it with a passion, and I'll tell you why I hate it. I hate that trick because I see not all... I mean, sword swallowing is different, but bed of nails, straight jacket, tennis racket. I see these tricks as being very similar to someone saying, I will contact your dead partner. And the reason I'll give you for this is, when someone does a magic trick in front of you, they'll show you the magic trick, and they'll say, I lied to you. Figure out how. Whereas when a freak show performer does majority of the freak show tricks are there, they're like, look, it's a stunt. This is difficult. It's incredibly hard. (laughs) And it's not. It's fucking easy. (laughs) These things are fucking easy to do. And at the end of a show, someone will come up to you and they'll go, oh, that was was amazing. How the fuck did you do that? And you have to bullshit them. (laughs) When a magician comes up to, when someone comes to a magician at the show and says, that was amazing, they go, yeah, I'm clever. You don't get that doing a freak show performer. <laughs> Your life is wrapped around conceit. Um, I've spent majority of the last five, six years of my career desperately trying to pull away from the conceit. But the problem is yeah. that the conceit is such an effective one. I could be funny for half an hour, and if I finish the show there, I know without a doubt that it will not compensate me as well as if I do this hacky bullshit trick at the end and go, isn't that incredible, everybody? And yet, every time you shed something, you lose money. Yes and no. Um, you shed it because you want to move on, but then you kind of take a step back until you move to the next step. So what's the next step for you? Um, well, I'd like to deal with the idea of shedding first. Yeah, I think, sure. I think that, you know, you should be um, you should be like an invertebrate when you're performing, constantly shedding your skin to grow. Um the tennis racket in my in my career what a fucking silly thing to say um, in my career is stay the same but that's only five minutes of what is generally a 40 minute show 
the rest of the time you shed the skin it's constantly changing and evolving and the things you did before you can draw back upon you know you've grown upon those things that are there but you're you're constantly evolving what you do and you can't evolve unless you cast off the skin you had before unless you're prepared to let go what was there this worked but I'm bored of this now I will do this the sad tragedy of that is that I talk these things I say but still the finale has been the same for fucking 10 years you know sometimes we talk about like the future of street performing you know and does it have a future and yet I turn up here at this festival and I've seen there's there's more performers than I re than I remember there's so many performers so it seems like street performing is alive and well it's an interesting one um the problem I have is I'm kind of the, the middle child, as far as I see, from the street performance renaissance. So you look at people like uh, Living Space, Silver, Pepe, um, Paddy, Bramwell, um, a lot of other people who I have genuine godlike respect for. And they, even though some of them are still working now, seem very much of a generation before. And it seems like the generation we have now is different from the generation they had then. And once again, this phrase that you know, you'll hear me saying over and over again is art and craft. And it seems like the generation before, the focus was very much on art. And it seems like um, the generation that's my generation, the generation just after me being the middle child, is focused more on craft. The, the, the talk of hats and what you get from hats seems far more than the content you have in your work. And that's an interesting place when you're talking about the future of street performance. Because the, all the creative shows are booking their retirement, kind of now. Yeah. I don't see many, and there are some, but I don't see many genuinely creative, interesting pieces of work. No, you're, you're right. So to so pick up on that. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, people just doing a craft show. You know, but the the creative shows, like take Sharon Mahoney for example, yes. right? Her show is very original. Yes, very you know, much so. Sharon from Canada, and she's done that show for 20 years, and for a long time it was shit. And I love Sharon, but her show was shit for a really long time. Love you too, Sharon. You know, but now her show is kicking ass. You know, it's a really strong show. You know, um, for what for what she's doing. Street shows take a long time to get good at, you know, and to, to hone. It's not like a stage show. You can't create a, a sealed piece of work that you can present and people will watch and they'll silently nod while you're doing it. In street shows, you're gonna have a guy get his dick out in the middle of the show. You're gonna have a guy come in and fall over and pass out in your fucking edge. And to have a good working show with that many variables around takes time. Because it's not just making the piece work. It's making the piece work in the thousand different things that can go on while that show's happening. It's making that piece work when you have a crowd who genuinely did not intend or necessarily want to see you. Not the same as a theatre show. When people go into a theatre show, they've already paid to see you. If they're shit, if you're shit, they've lost their money. Yeah. But in a street show, there's no vested interest. No one's paid to see you. No, they haven't. But do you still like it? I love street work. And I love street work for multiple reasons. I mean, first of all, I'm my own boss. I get to decide what I do. Um, I'm not making someone else rich. I used to work in a job when I was 16 in a factory taking plastic bags and they put them in boxes. 
It was the most boring fucking job you ever did. It was 11 hours of literally taking plastic bags of conveyor belt and putting them in boxes. Now, the guy who stood next to me, he could work half as hard as I did, but he would earn the same money. Now, in a street performance, if a guy next to me is working half as hard, has put half as much work in, chances are, unless they're one of those anomalies, they're not going to get as much from it. They're not going to earn as much. They're not going to have as much love. They're not going to have as much um, appreciation on their work. You genuinely get the return of what you put in in street work. If you put your hours in, you will get something back. Most jobs don't have that. Most jobs you work at, you will spend your fucking life laboring to make someone else wealthy, to make some fat, greasy fucking prick more money. Whereas when I go out and do a street show, I know that it's my work that I choose to do. It's my words I choose to say from a whole plethora of great material. <laughs> Less so now, but more so before. Um, it's my thing. And when I earn the money, I earn it because of what I did. And when the, the cash is paid at the end of your labor, it's paid to you because of what you did. And there's something special with that. Also as well, not just focusing on your own compensation, but we talked earlier on about legacy. Every human being has a legacy. When you die, there are things that exist on after you. Now, some people have a, a they find a mineral, and their their name will forever be remembered in the uh, pH table by the name of this mineral. Some people create a cure. Some people invent forceps. Some people invent a uh, element for a computer. Performers, most of them, the people who don't become the big television stars, your legacy is in the memory of the people who watched you. And every time you perform, you're layering upon that legacy. There's more people that will carry that memory of the work you did. And I genuinely go to sleep at night believing, sometimes more than others, that I have a legacy by the fact that I've put thoughts in people's heads. I had a show many, many years ago at the South Bank on the National Theatre. And the National Theatre is where I began performing, and after two days of performing there, I got moved on. I had to go and work with everyone else, which was a great experience, a great learning experience. But I was kind of oppressed by security. They told me where to be. And it was very, very nice, uh, three or four years ago, to go back there, having a lot of legal knowledge now, and having fought in a lot of spaces to fight against the restrictions on public space, to go to the exact spot where I began and have the same suits with different faces in them come up to me and tell me to move and for me to know that I can say no. And I did say no. And I did a show there where there was hundreds of people watching. I had a young child out and security guards grabbed my things and started being very physical. I told the child, I said, look, you go back to your family. It's okay. And during this time where the child went back, one of the security guards crept behind me, put his hand around my throat, put a chokehold on me. Then two other security guards grabbed each arm and tried to wrestle me to the ground. This is a long story, but it has a good point at the end of it. So as they're trying to wrestle me, I'm reasonably stable. And at the South Bank, you have the Thames River behind you. So I take these guys, I stay on my feet, and I slowly step them over to the fence. I quietly tell them, you're going to go in the river with me. All these guys, they let go of me. I managed to walk out to the center of the pitch and I say, should we continue the show? And everybody cheers. That's a great thing to have as me as an individual. It was a nice thing to do. Um, but the more important thing in terms of legacy 
is that that family saw me the next day in Covent Garden and they came up to me and they said thank you our son was quite upset about seeing what happened to you but we sat that night and we talked to him and we talked about why people do things in society about how society functions and it was a great experience for him to learn why people do what they do now that's legacy my legacy lives within that young man that young man saw somebody stand up try and be funny in public he saw people trying to press him and he saw through a polite playful way that a human being rise above that and managed to still maintain the joy and the interaction in that public space with everybody else that that's legacy that was one boy and I'd like to imagine over my life I've entertained millions of people and at least a few of them will carry something like that over with them and that's the thing you get to give in a street performance a stage performance would never ever have that kind of conflict conflict is something genuine sincere conflict is something that's kind of in performance safe for street shows it's safe for somewhere that isn't sterilized and as a performer you have the responsibility to be able to teach be able to show be able to show a mirror to the world about this conflict to your crowd about how you can function about the things you can and can't do about how you can be stubborn and reasonable and succeed within a public space against oppression yeah, well, that's a nice uh, skill to have. I've never had that skill. I've always been like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> the thing you always have to remember is if you lose your temper, you lost. Yeah, you and know? I've always lost my temper. That's, uh, that's been my greatest weakness because I know that I'm right, but the moment I fucking lose my temper, you lose. I mean, the thing I feel a lot of the time is if people are coming and give me conflict, and anyone who knows me will know that I really enjoy conflict in my work, that the thing that I think, and the thing that I say to people sometimes, is I say, go on, show everyone how much of a dickhead you are. And I don't mind that idea that you can be calm, and you can turn around, and when they're screaming at you, and when they're kicking your stuff over, you can go, okay scream and kick the clown show everybody how clever you are show everybody how evolved you are and then at that point the entire crowd gets to see a genuine human interaction and a genuine form of conflict but because you're an entertainer because you spent years dealing with human beings with any luck you will know how to deal with that situation without it turning into tragedy one of the interesting things I learned and it's so counterintuitive is that when people try and fight you on the street when you've told a joke to someone and they puff their chest up and come up to you and say what the fuck are you saying buddy it's a protocol violence most of the time with human beings works in escalating levels so they'll come to you and they'll push their chest up and they expect you to do the same so if come, someone comes and pushes their chest up at you if you lie down in front of them and begin kissing their shoes it completely denatures that protocol of violence and so they're there and in their subconscious mind they've won you're submitting you're lying down kissing their shoes you get to show the crowd this thing but at the same time you're in control you're in the control of that situation you get to show people aggression you get to show people that emotion that they have but at the same time because you know that you can interrupt that protocol because you know that you can be clever enough to work around that situation you can show them that in a safe way I had a thing years ago um, it's kind of a kill yourself with kindness kind of story there's a guy who walked into my show he had a pink face big round pink face no neck he was wearing a Hawaiian party time t-shirt he had scars all over his face 
he looked like he'd been in a lot of fights and he didn't win many of them. He was carrying a plastic bag with about seven cans of K-Cider. And if you're not from the UK, K-Cider is a super strength cider. It's a 9% cider. If you're an alcoholic on the street, you don't have much money, you want to get really fucking drunk, that's the cider you buy. And so I look at him immediately and I think, I could sterilize the space, I could try and usher him out of the, the performance space, or I could try and do something with this. I could try and use the, the world around me and try and play and be informative with it. So I turned around to him and I said, uh, hi, how you doing? What a finely crafted cider you have there. <laughs> Knowing the irony, expecting him to get the irony and be kind of playful and pleasant with me. <laughs> and he turns around to me, yeah, yeah, it is. And if I hit you around the head with it, I'll kill you. Genuinely verdating what he said. And so in that moment, I'm thinking, okay, this is tense, but in the way he's spoken to me, these are words of violence, but they're not words that are violent. Yeah. So I think I'm going to play with you a bit more. So I go, okay, well, you could kill me, or you could watch the show, and if I'm not shit, then you don't kill me. And he turned around, he had a bit of a smile on his face, and he went, all right, if you're not shit, I won't kill you. <laughs> and I watched the crowd go from feeling this palpable fear of this guy. What is he going to do to this person we've just got to like? To this kind of relaxation from the crowd I'd humanised this guy who was at that point something everybody felt was a threat and he sat at the back of my show and he kind of became like the old guy from the Muppets of my show and it was this beautiful thing and it was beautiful up until the point where another performer quietly crook in the back uh, crept in the back turned around to me uh, turned around to him and said look mate you've got to move you, you, you shouldn't be in the show and at that point, I'd give him a place to be in the show. I'd give him his time. And he began fighting with this guy who came to help him. Oh, yeah. And it ruined the moment. It really did. And I think that's a good gauge for anyone you see performing is try and stay hands off if you can. Crazy people are just people in public spaces that act a bit peculiar. We're one of them. If you can play and make those people feel safe, majority of the time, those people will be a boon to your work. The crowd will look at you and they'll look at a situation they felt fearful of and they will see that you were clever enough and you were empathetic enough to deal with this human being like a human being. Yeah. That's, that's something in a public space that I think we all should feel an imperative to do. Well, I totally agree. Uh, but the UK especially has a long history of outdoor street theatre. It's not, it's not a worldwide thing. You know, there's a lot of countries in the world where you can't do you can't do a street show. You know, so I mean, what am I trying to say? It's it's a unique it's a unique thing to this to this part of the world. I kind of I get what you're saying. So Britain, uh, particularly London, where I've had my experience of it, when I began, there was safe zones. You know, and the safe zones were the South Bank, where it was private property and it was permitted. And the other safe zone was Covent Garden, where it was licensed and you had to be good. And fairly rapidly, because of a number of hostile street performers in different places, I decided to branch out and I decided to go to other big public squares and try and do street shows there. And I learned really, really quickly that when you performed at that era, 10, 15 years ago in London, in places where people didn't expect you to be, you would get hostility. Not necessarily from the public, the public love it. It's entertainment, it's joy. From any 
bureaucrat of any kind, any police officer, any council official, they would look at it and they'd say, I don't know why, but I'm sure this isn't supposed to be happening here. And they would come up to you and they would attempt to move you on. Now, I was lucky in a way that as soon as I left university and I started contact juggling on the street to form a living, and my girlfriend decided I, I wasn't a good boyfriend and left me. And so I had to move out of our house and I started squatting. And one of the good things about squatting is unless you want to be homeless, you have no choice but to argue with police officers. <laughs> and so it taught me that police officers are people in costume and that what they say isn't necessarily how the law works. They're not solicitors, they're not informed. They're told to go and do something, and just because they're told to go and do it and they have the will to do it, doesn't mean they can. Most of their lives they operate on inferred authority. Not authority they have, but authority that the uniform seems to give them. So because I had that thing, I did something that a lot of the people didn't do when they were busking. A lot of the people would play the duck and dive game. When the police come, when the council come, they pack the gear up, they move away, and they wait till they left, and they come back and work. I would stay on the pitch, ideally in the show if possible. And when they came to tell me to move, I'd say no, and I'd say why. Very rarely, but occasionally, they'd quote a law, and I didn't know the law, so I'd go, okay, I'm going to check that. And I'd go home, and I'd check on legislation.gov, which in the UK is where all legislation is stored for you to view. I'd read the laws and I'd understand the laws. I'd look in the Black's legal dictionary to understand what the terminology meant in the law. So the next time they came to me in a place, like particularly one of the big ones I did over a few years was Trafalgar Square. So when they'd come the next time, I'd be able to explain the meaning of the laws they were trying to use to remove me. And it came to the point where I would no longer fear being removed because I had a good understanding of public law. I knew that in the UK, that you had the right to express yourself in public. You had the right of freedom of assembly. You had the right to go and gather people together and communicate to them. And particularly in places like um, Trafalgar Square, which is a huge open space where there's no residence, there's no reasonable reason for you to be causing a disturbance, causing something that uh, would annoy someone else. You're not playing inside the home. You're not making sound which penetrates their property. So I knew that there was no right for the council or the police to get rid of me. They were just doing it because they thought that's what they should do. And so I think it's important for every performer to do this. It's important to go and check legislation. It's important to be stubborn. Be polite, but be stubborn. Say no. It's the most amazing word ever, and people don't use it enough. We think you should go. You should go. No. Just say no. See what they do. They usually fall apart. Yeah, well, in my hometown, they they really don't want street performers, and they have they've corralled the laws so that they make it impossible. But this is the thing: they did this in London ten years ago. So you would be um, the police would come up to you and they'd say, "Okay, you're a beggar. You can't beg." And so you check the law, and begging in the UK is from the Vagrancy Act, 1844, and it says no person shall gather arms. And I chatted with the police officers, and they said, yeah, gather arms, you know, hold your arms out to collect money. Police officers tend to be fucking stupid bastards. The word is A-L-M-S, arms. Now, arms is to give a virtue, to give and receive nothing in return. If you're on a street and you're providing culture, if you're providing comedy or performance or athletic feats, these things are sold on DVDs in society. The value is not the plastic that the DVD is printed on. The value is the content. 
what you're providing in a public place has value. You're not begging. You're giving something of value. Another thing they'll try and do with this is they'll try and say you're trading. Now, if you're a musician, you're selling CDs, you kind of are trading. You're on difficult ground with that one. But if you're a performer, unless you are starting your show with every one of your audience there at the beginning, and you're saying, I will do this for this money, you're not trading. There's no contract. You're not doing a service. You are presenting a piece of artwork. And if people choose, after you present the artwork, to compensate you, that's not a trade. You present it anyway. If you present that piece of work and everyone fucking leaves, it's their choice. There's no contract, so you're not trading. Other thing they'll try is blockage of the highways. And if you look at the blockage of the highways, if you're not blocking the highway, as in people cannot move from A to B, if people can move from A to B, you're not blocking that highway. The police will try and bend any piece of legislation to make it work for what the person above them tells them to do. It's your responsibility, I believe, to know what that legislation is and to refuse their requests when they're unreasonable, when they don't fit that legislation. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm all for that. I'm all for that. This is the thing I'm worried about, is that the, in London, in the UK, we've developed through battles, through court battles, through consistent, reasonable refusal of unreasonable requests, a very safe environment. And because we have a very safe environment to entertain now, the younger people coming through are talking about working with the council with licensing. Now, for me, as someone who spent majority of my... Once again, the word career, fucking career. Majority of my life entertaining battling the authorities because they are adamant that you shouldn't be there. The idea of turning around and giving them the right to permit me to be there is fucking mental. Dangerous ground. It's incredibly dangerous ground. We fought for our freedom and it seems like potentially the younger generation for convenience and for the ability to close the door behind them so that people who want to come in in the future have to jump through hoops so that they have an easier time and a shorter queue are willing to give that freedom and that power away to the body who spent most of the time that we got that freedom trying to refuse it to us. Well, that's a bigger subject as well because it expands on so many different things. It really does. I mean, the, the We're pirates. We are pirates, but particularly in Britain, there's a thing called public-private partnership, and it's an interesting one. So... Um, councils and the government no longer wish to pay for the management of public places. So what they're doing is they're succeeding that management to private companies, they're selling them the land, and then that company owns the land and they manage the land. And we've been fighting in those places to have the same public assets we had before. And a lot of younger people will turn around, I say younger as if it's evil, a lot of people who didn't have the same experience we had will turn around and say, well, look, they're managing the place, they're making it great. But what they don't understand is that the personal freedom, the ability for you as an individual and you as a group of people to affect the world around you relies upon the fact that we have shared public spaces that we all have equal access to. The guy chatting bullshit pissed out of his face on a fucking lamppost. He has a right to do that. And if you go to a private managed space, there'll be some well-meaning dicky security guard who will surely usher him out of that place. And that shouldn't happen. Well, you're talking about the future of the world then. Yeah, very because much so. Because if, if we take away all those rights, 
then we're all fucked. I heard a great, uh, great phrase that was said by uh, a performer called Sham, a great Covent Garden performer, Sham and he said, if you look at societies, a great gauge of how free societies are is whether we have street performers. Mm. Most free societies, and there's in majority of them are vibrant street performance culture because people can go out on the street and they can present culture and they can reasonably be compensated for that if they wish. If you look at very controlled societies, the things you'll find in the public spaces are managed to fit a narrative that society desires to be projected to the public. Are you saying street performers are the canaries in the coal mine? Very much so, very much so. When you hear us stop singing, then you have to be worried. Well, that's interesting that you're the son of a coal miner. Yes, very much so. I will give you a counterpoint on this. When I began working in Trafalgar Square, Leicester Square, a lot of the public spaces in London, they were empty. I was the only person working there, or one of the only people working there. If I went there and there was another guy there, if there was a statue there, a musician 50 meters away, it was a turn up. It was nice to say hello and get a little bit of company. And now if you go to work in Trafalgar Square, every single inch of that real estate is taken up by a performer. And I wonder how sustainable that is. And there's nothing in any way that I would reasonably choose to do about that. I think it should be public, the, the public places should be accessible for everybody. But then you watch the growth, and you watch the expanse, and you watch the, the shoulder barging, which I think is natural and it's beautiful, and I will say this, I think Trafalgar Square, as it is now, is a great example of how people organized together and shared together. But you wonder how sustainable it is. Is there just going to be more and more performers every year? Are we going to fill up every public space, every square in the entire of the city? Every inch of usable space will be people doing performance in every area. It's just an interesting one. I've got no idea how you, how you manage, as a community, the, the growth. Yeah, yeah. But better to just let it be well, than I, to try and manage it into a point where then it's uh, locked. Well, I'll say this. I mean, I said this before in the story. I was a guy who walked out of a job with a, with a plastic ball, and I walked out on the street without any right to be there as an artist, and I developed a craft. And I developed a craft now where I'm very proud to say I see performers come up to me at the end of my work and say they appreciate it. People in my craft, uh, my art, my field, appreciate what I do. And I started off as being kind of like some junkie kid with a plastic ball. And I think you have to give the opportunity for that, for people who have no skill or experience to develop their work. There's a guy in London who plays a fucking traffic cone. He sits there on the floor. He's a kind of little heroin addict dude. And he sits there and goes, bah, 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 with a traffic cone. I've watched him do that for nine years now. <laughs> I've watched his craft evolve. I sit there sometimes now and I find myself listening to him for 10, 15 minutes because he's developed singing into a fucking traffic cone into something that's haunting and moving. Do you think any booker in the world would go, we've got to get that junkie traffic cone guy? <laughs> he's the guy we want on our street corner. Never. They would never pick him. No one would ever pick him. No one would ever fucking license him. 
but because the street is open and accessible to everybody, he had an opportunity to develop a craft which is unique to him. There's even now guys who are hacking up his routine in London, and you'll see a guy on the traffic cone going, yeah, he's hacking this guy's traffic cone routine. Nowhere near as good. It's become a like little subgenre of street music is the traffic cone guys from this one dude. That's funny. It's very funny. And yeah, just as I said, it's something you'd never ever get any booker, any license by, any person in the council would never permit that. But because it's open access, the weeds grow out of the cracks in the pavement. It's amazing life, really. Yes. But you're much. you're still a young guy. I'm 34, so I'm You're still pretty young. You got uh, you got a long future ahead of you. I said this, I'm in the middle ground now. I'm not I'm, I was the young guy in the pitch for a good 10 years. And I really like being the young guy in the pitch because the pressure's off a little bit when you're young. You can look kind of uh, wide-eyed and starry-eyed and people will pay you because you're young and performers will give you a chance because you're learning. And I'm in the middle ground now. I'm 34. A lot of the older performers are 50. And so I, I have this sense now that you have to make something now. You know, yeah. So that's the, you, you got this another shedding moment. Very much so. You know, as I said, now the craft, my my acquisition of understanding of the craft is done. I'd like to believe you'll still learn more, but my core understanding of what it is to to do street performance is done. And now for me, the real focus and the grinding focus, and you know, I get teary sometimes grinding through trying to do this, is to make art. Is to make something that has artistic content, to make something which has subtext, metaphor, something which communicates something to the audience, something which at the end I can think I had a message, I communicated something valuable and important to the people who watched what I did. And that's my challenge now. And uh, I'm not quite there, I'm still doing the fucking tennis racket, but you know. Say <laughs> la vie, as they say, say la vie. <coughs> You'll get there. I'm getting there. I'm on the way, you know, and uh, I think if you keep working at something, if you keep singing into a traffic cone, sooner or later you get good at it. Yeah, you do. Well, we've been talking for over an hour now, and uh, uh, I think we got some good stuff there. Let's just do a bookend. Oh. Well, Not that fucking silent, is it? We've just been invaded by a group of uh, people singing. They're doing their own street theater. Is this art? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, crack on, man. It's all good. Have fun. Well, we are at the fringe. And I think this is a fitting way to end it. Thanks for talking to me. Hey, you're welcome. My pleasure. If you didn't find something valuable from that interview, I suggest you listen again. As always, this podcast is a labor of love, but we do need sponsorship to keep it going and release episodes more frequently. If you'd like to become a sponsor of the podcast, contact me at magic at buskerhalloffame.com. You can also visit the Busker Hall of Fame website and throw a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button or become a sustaining supporter of the project at patreon.com forward slash busker stories. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help grow this resource and generate more content. Thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping keep busking history alive. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend about it and leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. If you'd like someone to be interviewed or feel a certain voice has not been heard, please reach out to me and let me know. We're doing our best to capture interviews and stories with as many performers as we possibly can. It's up to you to help fill in the gaps. On behalf of myself, Eric Andrew, who captured the interview, Kim Potter, who edited it, and the rest of the team of the Busker Hall of Fame, remember, if you can't laugh at yourself, find someone else and laugh at them. I'm Magic Brian. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.